It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 a.m. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio WERU-FM Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. And all around this wet world at WERU.org, it's Schooner Fair. Our friend Schooner Fair there in the background piping in Boat Talk. Boat Talk is a uh, call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors. Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague and a couple of uh, fellows who like to call themselves sailors but were maybe fit better into the drifter class. But we have a <laughs> excellent drifter here with us, too. Steve Callahan is going to be joining us here in just a little bit. I'd like to uh, start off by thanking Amy Brown in the uh, engine room to keeping things going. But speaking of engine rooms... Uh, Mike and I lost a good uh, engineer friend, marine mechanic, uh, just recently. Yeah, we'd like to dedicate the program this morning to our friend Alden Gray, Tremont, Maine. Yep, one of those good-hearted people. Yeah, Alden, uh, what, uh, Bass Harbor Marine, uh, Morris Company? Yep, he started, I believe he started at the Hinkley Company and then migrated over to Bass Harbor Marine and Morris and then back to Hinkley. He's, uh, you know... A skilled mechanic so that he can just walk into most any place and uh, with his credentials they'd hire him on the spot alden Not was now. also a politician <laughs> he was a selectman and a, and the code enforcement he op- was a officer oh yes down in tremont okay and one of the great things about alden why we're talking about him this morning and why there was no parking at his service on saturday okay you couldn't hardly get all the people into the chapel they were squeezing into the door at the end there and uh hell of a nice fella and uh again um alden passed away uh he died of a heart attack at 58 58 yeah so we like to uh dedicate the show to alden this morning you want to hope that uh standing room only uh tribute to you you know like it was to alden Mm. and uh uh, you know, I hate to say it, but the message from the minister was, uh, you never know, keep your bags packed. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. anyway, Alden Gray, uh, hell of a good fellow. ditch bag. Uh, hell of a good fellow. Yeah. yeah. This morning. So that's that business. We always uh, owe a couple odds and ends to mention this morning, and then we'll get down to uh, the real business, which is we got our friend Steve Callahan here this morning, and we hope to talk to Steve about his work in Hollywood. Um We've uh, talked to him in the past about his survival story, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So um, the uh, report, uh, not the report, the transcripts of the El Faro sinking disaster oh, are due today. to come out today. Mm-hmm. Could be kind of interesting. They've uh, recovered a voice recorder. Just yeah. amazing what, uh, you know, uh, ghosts, I guess, will come up. But, um, again, uh, bound to be kind of interesting. Um uh, 
Yeah, tragedy. I don't think there'll be any great revelations. It's just, uh, you know, you lose your engine in the middle of a hurricane, and you got some pretty tough luck in front of you. Yeah, um, and again, boat goes sideways. It fills up with water. It's going to sink to the bottom of the sea. That's that. So, um, yep, the El Faro people. Now, speaking of uh, powering uh, watercraft, I saw a thing on the, uh, on the television this morning. A fellow in Hawaii surfing, he's being pulled by a drone. Huh. He's in yeah. some big water. He's in some big waves. Is he's he got con- he's got a drone on a tether. He is. A he must have. I hope so. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Oh, yeah. And he's being pulled through these big waves and water by that drone. Now that leaves me some. Uh, that's got possibilities, man, uh, for dinghies, I suppose. Um, we used to hang out up to Mount Blue Pond back in the day when we were young and stupid, and and we had a. Uh, a parachute up to camp there and we used to strap that thing on to as much as four or five or six people mm-hmm. with cross-country skis and let it fill up and then try to think what you're going to do when the other side of the pond and them trees are coming so fast at you <laughs> it wasn't very sterile no quick release <laughs> it wasn't very sterile at all but you talk about a uh, uh yeah so anyway um yeah, the drone powered. Uh, think about that yeah. another way to to power a vessel nowadays got got possibilities I'm just saying I don't know what the drone regulations yeah, I are. I bet your Homeland Security is thinking about that, Well, too. again, there's ins and outs of drones, too. Um, oh, let's think what else. I uh, want to mention uh, the shrimp season's not going to be open this year again in the Gulf of Maine. Closed, yeah. yeah. And those beautiful little Gulf of Maine shrimps are, of course, uh, different and way better than every other shrimp in the world. Uh, not them big, huge ones you get places. They're little, they're tiny, they're, oh, man. Um, they sent a fella out and uh, picked a fisherman and sent him out to sample um, the Gulf of Maine, go out and catch some shrimp for research purposes, see where we're at here. Um, the punchline to that is those shrimp were allowed to be sold. How hard cha- how hard a time you think that fella had selling <laughs> them shrimp? <laughs> You've yeah. never seen more supply for less demand. Or, or more demand for less supply than that, that fellow I had for them yeah. shrimp there, okay? Um, I brought in a poster this morning um, I got from a friend of mine. It's called The Undersea, Undersea Landscapes of the Gulf of Maine. And it's kind of a uh, 3D view of what the Gulf of Maine would look like if you could see through the water. And as we mentioned before, it looks like a big open, um, it's big and open to the sea, but in fact it's not. It's a kind of a puddle, and it is fronted by big banks. And uh, there is really only one way in and out of that thing, which is the Great South Channel. And if you look at this uh, undersea landscapes uh, poster here, you see that the Bay of Funday, the water comes down like a waterfall, at least steep rapids. And uh, into the big bowl that's the Gulf of Maine, shoals all the way around it, and a big one reaching out sort of like Cape Cod. Uh, way over towards the south of Nova Scotia. And uh, that that entrance to that, think of it like the uh, rim of a pitcher, okay? The bowl of the Gulf of Maine's inside the pitcher. The uh, flared rim is not very wide, and the drop of it over the front side is pretty steep. So what the scientists say is that there are two separate populations. There's a Gulf of Maine shrimp population that's inside the pitcher. There's a North Atlantic uh, shrimp population that's outside of the pitcher, but for them shrimp to get inside, they have to go up and over the rim of the uh, pitcher there, and, and again, they tend not to do that. 
So the idea is that when uh, we catch all the shrimp that's inside, the other ones ain't coming uh, along to fill the ecological niche like they might like to. The other thing that uh, reflects on this topography I'm trying to explain to you here is that the Gulf of Maine is known as one of the fastest warming bodies of water around global warming, uh, you know, yin-yang. Uh, I say uh, I say we listen to scientists personally, but uh, again, the uh, topography of it uh, kind of special. Yeah, you know? I think we should give credit to the people who put out that poster. It's the uh, Gulf of Maine .org, the Gulf of Maine Institute. Uh, I check them out, go online. It's a great poster. Good I, one, yeah. I'd like to get one of those myself. It was on the wall of a lady's house I work at, and uh, I, I admired it so much she gave it to me. Uh -huh. So I was pretty happy about that. Gulfofmaine.org. Yeah, let's think what else. Uh, cruise ships. There was a uh, wonderful uh, letter in the Bangor Daily News, I believe it was on Friday, from a retired chief engineer uh, from Dedham, Maine, and uh, his point was that the cruise ships have been caught dumping things off to sea that they shouldn't, um, specifically gray waste, uh, sewage uh, yeah. waste. Uh, they have let alone what they call a magic pipe. Engine waste and, uh, you know, uh, again, bad things that, that uh, would cost money to uh, process properly once they get to shore. His point was quite interesting. That's not accidental, Okay. And if it is systemic, that's even more interesting because there is a waste budget, okay? If they don't meet that budget because they've pumped the stuff overboard, well, at least the accountant knows about that, let alone the people that turn the valves. Well, the accountant knows, yes, that they didn't get a bill for a waste discharge. And, again, it's not an incidental thing at no, all because, again, it costs a bunch of you money. You talk to engineers, they all know what a magic pipe is. Uh, there were two, uh, two fellows can't remember what country they came from, but they're doing jail time now. For uh, They were found using a magic pipe, and the Coast Guard put them in jail. Related but not the same thing I thought was also interesting. The town of Northeast Harbor was approached by a cruise ship line that says, can we anchor off of your harbor and bring our people in? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And the town of Northeast Harbor says, no, thank you. Stay over to Bar Harbor. No, 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 we don't want you over here. And, and the reasoning was our town is too small and you're going to flood it and, and mess it up. And um, that philosophy is how they approach uh, cruise ships in the Arctic nowadays. If you land at a little town in Greenland or in the high Arctic, you can't all go to the store and buy everything on the shelves because then the people left there won't have anything. Right. And uh, it's good that you buy their knickknacks but not their Snickers bars, <laughs> um, literally. And the town of Northeast Arbor... For whatever reasons of, of population, the uh, uh, what would you call it, demographics? <laughs> Skew's a little high over there. They don't want the cruise ships off their town coming in and walking around leaving all that money. It would be a lot of people jamming up a fairly small town. It's a big-time thing over to Bar Harbor now. If you have, And if you haven't been over to Bar Harbor and seen one of those things sitting off the harbor there in between the little... Uh, Humpy little islands and stuff. It's quite a scene because uh, they are they are huge out of scale, out of scale, and they look so top heavy. They're they're always something to see offshore, especially at night because they're so huge and so lit up. You think well, well we've we've come near a city. Oh no, there's a cruise ship coming by. So they travel at night quite a lot. Because, oh yes, because they want to have the people wake up and be at their next port when they wake up. Oh yeah, no, dodged one off of uh, Nova Scotia just a month or two ago myself. 
Um, got to thank Catherine down to Appleton, a uh, kind of a usual suspect, a regular listener. Catherine sent me an email about um, admiralty law and, and the words involved in admiralty law. And this is a fellow named Jordan Maxwell. It's on YouTube. You can uh, Google that fairly easily. Jordan Maxwell talks about it's all about admiralty law, and admiralty law is all concerned because it's all about money, okay? And as he's explaining terms of a vessel, captain, uh, why is it just she and all that, he also touches on liberty and freedom. And the fact that, um, interestingly enough, Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump would love this, According to uh, Admiralty Law, Donald Trump has not just become president of the uh, United States of America, an independent country, one of uh, like 180-some on the globe. No, he has just become the leader of a private corporation, according to Admiralty Law, biggest, most important one on, on the planet. Admiralty Law also talks about liberty and freedom, the point being there is no freedom, no such thing anywhere, ever. Liberty, yes, sailors get liberty. Okay, we are at liberty, but absolute freedom? Eh, no, that's a, that's a bit of a scam when you get right down to it. Jordan Maxwell, Admiralty Law, that was up on YouTube. Thanks, Catherine. I'm still trying to process that. I may have to, you know, work on it some more. Um, what else we got this morning? I have one that's probably going to break into a discussion uh, for the audience. Also, I should give the number. The call-in number is one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. If you'd like to join in the discussion, but I uh, I've heard in the rumor mill, and I've been unable to substantiate it. Um, but a new record from uh, I'm not sure whether it's Newport or New York or Chesapeake, uh, America to Bermuda record, eighteen hours. Oh whoa whoa! I know that to be what it's about a six day. Uh, yeah, five six day yeah, slog. Five, six day, usually, uh, yeah. At six knots, it's mm. like six days. Yeah. yeah, eighteen hours. This is in a. You know, That's less than one day. That's uh, three quarters of one day. How? What kind of boat was that? Well, now? you can figure it's an America's Cup type boat. You know, big wide catamaran. And they on survived because they might not have. Yeah, they were able to foil the whole way. Wow, averaging about forty five miles an hour. <clears throat> and uh, hey. I, mentioned, I mentioned this to Giffy. On, I don't think uh, that fast, man. On Sunday. Uh, to a, and he says, no, oh, that's not a boat. He says, you can get there faster if they just take an airplane. <laughs> he says, I don't, those are not boats. I don't even, he says, I want to go to the America's Cup back to about being monohulls. And I'll vote with him on that one. Speaking of racing sailors, I got one more uh, item here. It's a book I picked up at the Ellsworth Library, quite, quite good. And um, I think we're going to make a boat talk program out of this very soon, too. It's called Deer Isles Undefeated America Cup Cruise. Humble Heroes from a Down East Island, Mark Gabrielson, brand new. And the story is that in uh, the 1890s, the uh, New York Yacht Club uh, accidentally won this cup over to England, brought it back, and uh, the America's Cup thing uh, started. So the first time they were challenged, they thought, got to have an American crew. They've been using Scandinavian hired guns. And uh, so where to find the best racing sailing crew in America they're down in Bristol, Rhode Island, building the boat. They're Long Island Sound people, New York. Uh, there's sailors everywhere, okay? It's not hard to find a good sailor. They went to Deer Isle because it's insulated and, and insular and, Isolated, and of a community yeah. that was full of people that just mostly sail for a living, okay? Whether they're trying to uh, get out to the fish quicker, get back in, or get away from the revenue man, all right? And uh, these guys all knew each other. 
there were no people from way on that Deer Isle crew. Uh, they were all um, uh, very old school Deer Isle people. They gelled into a crew really quickly. They won the 1895 America's Cup um, with some great controversy. Makes for a good story in the book. They were called back in 1895 to defend it against the Lipton T fella from um, England. Okay. 1899. 1899, yes. Yeah. And um, in that case, they had a different captain. They loved the first captain. The second captain kind of pissed him off. Okay, he was a yeller. He was uh, not a people person. Uh, you know, probably real good at what he did, but he got on the wrong side of the Deer Isle boys. They were never asked back. That was probably all right with them. And for <laughs> the same reason <laughs> that they were asked down there because of their insularity and the, and their bonding, um, it was the same reason why they couldn't put up with the other and and didn't come back. You get on the wrong side of them fellows, it's hard. Again, hard to convince them you're cool once they're pretty sure you ain't. So. Great story. Uh, Deer Isle's undefeated America Cup cruise. We'll try to turn that into a program sometime this winter. So that's about the size of that. Where are we at? Boat talk. Boat talk, yes. Steve Callahan. Welcome to Boat Talk, Steve. You've been Thanks. you've been quite reserved. I was hoping you'd pipe in on some of these. Well, things. I could a bit. I've been, you know, over the last Feel 50, 50 something years. <laughs> I've been a, I've been sailing, and, and I'm not as much of a traditionalist as many of you or your listeners, I'm sure. Um, and I'd just like to add a, add a, a couple of a notes here. Um, uh, back in the, I don't know, mid-'70s when I started uh, racing offshore, going to Bermuda, and, and what at the time were sort of state-of-the-art multi-hulls and whatnot, we thought we were doing pretty good doing 15, 18 Touching twenty knots and six is more regular. Yeah, eight, yeah. I mean, know. for me, it was a miracle. Ten when you're going fast. It was a miracle coming yeah. coming from uh, sailing. Also, monohulls of all different different types, and uh, uh, it's amazing to me to see how much the uh, sport has progressed. Um, I, I'd like to mention now for anybody who's interested in sort of the high technology end of it and how professional the sport has become. Uh, it's as, as big a sport in France as uh, football or baseball is here in the United States, and there's something going on now called the Vendée Globe. You can find it on the web. There's an English uh, daily posting. You can uh, see communications from the skippers in the middle of right now, the middle of the southern Real time, o- southern as they ocean. Say, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, uh, Rich Wilson, an American, uh, yeah. is is participating. I think Rich is in his. Uh, he's a little older than me. He's uh, in his uh, getting into his upper sixties now, and he's participating, which is amazing. These boats are so physical, sixty footers, and they're uh, the leaders are more than uh, uh, more than halfway around the world now. They got halfway around the world in just over a month. I think it was thirty four, thirty five days, something like that. And these are single hulled vessels. Um, the newest ones, the, single-handed too. They're single-handed. Yeah, they're just... uh, the the size of everything. Oh wait, he's by himself. Yeah, this is single-handed, non-stop oh, around I, the world. Because I was going to say it would be exhausting just to be a passenger on a boat like that for the slamming and. Well, and, let know. me tell you something. The 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 noise in these boats yeah. is incredible. There, it's up to a hundred deci- hundred yeah. decibels. Um, even the last generation of boats, when they went out and tested them, you know, you, there are a lot of places in the boats you're experiencing up to five Gs. 
and these boats are bouncing around all over the friggin' place. Hitting and, a wave sometimes, like hitting a wall. And yeah, and again, yeah, and just constantly. Yeah. How they even sleep is a little bit of a, wow. mi- a yeah. mystery. So yeah. um, it's a very, very physical sport. But uh, from my point of view, it's incredibly exciting. I sailed a early version of these boats back when was it '86, which seems like yesterday, but I know it's kind of the Stone Age now. And we came across the Atlantic. We thought we were doing good coming across the Atlantic in like 16 days or something. Of course, that was against the wind. These these boats are sailing mostly downwind. But the boats these days are averaging speeds almost twice of what we were capable of doing in that era. And uh, I, I actually love the technology, but it's a totally different thing. There are a lot of things I miss about uh, going off. Uh, not being able to communicate with anybody really for a month or so as you go across the Atlantic, finding your way around with the stars and, you know. And you reappear and everybody uh, catches up or you don't. And you don't really know what the weather is doing other than looking at the the barometer. It's it's just a whole new world today. But um, They're better wired out in the middle of the ocean than we are. Oh, way better. Way better wired. Yeah, yeah. They're seeing everything that's coming and able. They're going fast enough speeds that they're actually uh, maneuvering, using uh, low-pressure, high-pressure systems, they can actually navigate around them rather than just getting rolled over by them like we, we were back in the back in the Stone Age. That's freaking dangerous to uh, charge through the night like that, let alone the daytime. There's a, Yeah, that's something else I'd like to mention. Uh, you know, people who are not aware of how much debris there is out there in the ocean, a feeder race to this. I wasn't New, from, even thinking anything but waves, but from, thanks for you. Yeah. From New York to uh, back to um, uh, France uh, is a feeder race. Uh, there were about five or six boats hit debris hard enough to uh, make them retire from the race coming out of New York. And so far, there have been about five boats uh, hit, uh, they call them UFOs, unidentified floating objects. Mm. Um, In the Southern Ocean, one boat had to be abandoned, uh, probably hitting a whale. These are very, very deep, straight keels, and uh, Mm. you hit something going 20, 25 knots. um, Wow. Hard on the whale, too. Yeah, very hard on the whale. Uh, But there's other stuff out there. It's like a car wreck, uh, literally a car wreck, yeah. Yeah, containers, law. I've seen everything you can imagine afloat at one time. Time another. You I'm know sure how many you containers have are lost in a year in the shipping industry now? It's they don't really know exactly because a lot of people don't report them right. for insurance yeah. purposes, but they figure, as my understanding is that they're well over a thousand a year. Yep. Yeah. Um, Wooden English Y'all brought to Nova Scotian back just a little while ago, and, and we're bringing it over from uh, Brooklyn to Castine. Coming around Cape Rozier, here's a big uh, old uh, piling, oak piling adrift and just one end of it out and they look at that and you go oh glad i saw that and went around it yeah and we're coming across from nova scotia it was one of the happiest little trips i've ever been on and i come down into my bunk and it's a, one of my favorite times on uh, ever of life okay is to be off watch jump into your bunk i always go up forward and uh you know it's your own time for the next couple hours and and uh, again rock me a uh, baby yeah. and then you think about that oak piling coming through the plank right next to your head and what it, you know yeah. Yeah. And the more you think about the possibility of that, which there is, you can, it's hard to just roll over and smile happily and go to sleep. And uh, uh, having thought about that, that's hard to hard to shake. So yeah, yeah. yeah and the west, west coast is even more so because you know there's so much logging of big logs out there, and uh, mm-hmm. all you got to do is go up and down Puget Sound and see the debris that they pull out of Puget Sound every year. It's just amazing. Well, uh, and frankly, I've had friends that it's happened to. Oh wait, you're sitting right here today, <laughs> today Steve Callahan. 
Um, yeah, I'm, no, I'm known probably for going the slow way across the ocean, came, actually, even though came, I came across yeah. a lot faster <laughs> a number of other times. But. Your, your initial uh, claim to fame is, is the book Adrift, which was uh, your experience uh, crossing um, back. Uh, you were over to um, the Azores and then coming back this way in a 21-foot uh, homemade wooden boat, and you hit something in the night. The boat sank. You were 76 days in a life raft now. We covered that in March. We had, I thought, I, I'm really proud of the chat we had in March. It's up on uh, BoatTalk.org. It's on WERU.org. Yep. Look up uh, March of 2016 in, yep. in the Boat Talk wonderful, podcasts. Wonderful, uh, wonderful story. But uh, again, not, that, not not the recommended way of crossing the ocean. No, but when no. you got to do it, you got to yeah. do it. You know? And again, you were a uh, way above average survivor. Um, made the point um, earlier that um, in a different forum that. Uh, people who don't work at it don't survive. Um, yeah, it's an active pursuit. It's yeah. not a passive. Yeah, you've got activity. people, again, that don't work at it, uh, don't tend to survive as well. And uh, so anyway, um, yeah, when you're in a life raft, uh, you've got to do more than just inhabit it. Um, and you did that. So anyway, your experiences led you to uh, be called somehow by Hollywood for consultant work. Yeah, that was, uh, I find life is very um, uh, interesting how, uh, you know, sort of serendipity of life takes you in one path or the other. I've always been very open to that. And uh, I had no idea that being dumb enough to lose my boat in the middle of the Atlantic and drifting in a very slow way the rest of the way across would uh, uh, 30, about 30 years later, lead me to uh, working on a, on a film. I always loved films uh, from the time I was a kid. Um, and, but I never imagined working in them. And after working on a couple of them, I, I, I think, and what, what was I thinking as a kid? I should have looked into this, uh, cause I found it very interesting to work kind of behind the scenes on a number of things. The first was, uh, Life of Pi, which, uh, started really in 2009 when Ang Lee and, uh, scriptwriter David McGee came up to visit when they were thinking about making this film that everybody thought couldn't possibly be made already three other directors had been uh, had tried and failed and uh, gone away and Ang decided to take it on and he came up just for uh, initially a, a chat about oceanic things and I thought he'd be very interested about you know um, uh, what kind of wildlife would there be in the middle of the Pacific and whether this was you know how realistic was the story and currents and lifeboats and I prepared all this stuff for him but he was also interested in uh, uh, things that I that I, I'm quite uh, fond of uh, in life, uh, the more abstract uh, elements of being at sea, what it actually felt, what it feels like, what it, uh, what kind of th thoughts go through your head, uh, uh, even kind of spiritual uh, essence uh, that you can find at sea, being alone. So that led uh, eventually into me doing quite a lot of work on that film from. Uh, through about 2012 and um, uh, when they were finishing the post-production. And uh, then in, I don't know, sort of later 2012, I got a call from uh, Bill Connor, uh, who, was, who served as the first assistant director um, uh, and I'd worked with on Life of Pi. And uh, he normally works with Ron Howard. And so he... Uh, they were. They decided to take on a film uh, called *In the Heart of the Sea*, uh, which is based on the Nathaniel Philbrick uh, uh, book, um, which chronicles the tale of the whaling ship *Essex*. 
and um, according to most people, really inspired Melville to uh, to, to write Moby, Moby Dick. But uh, it's a it's a very different tale than Moby Dick. Um, True. And uh, but it's a fantastic book, and uh, so of course I jumped at that opportunity in part because um, I I think it's just very cool working on films. Um, you actually get paid, <laughs> as opposed to a lot of this, the boating work I've done over the years. And um, in addition, it would eventually bring me back to the Canary Islands from where I uh, I left with Napoleon Solo all those years before. So it really nice. kind of brought my life kind of full circle in a way, huh. um, back, back to that point anyway. Writing that book, Adrift, um, obviously introduced you to more than a couple of interesting people. Uh, you sailed with some of them and, and, again, made connections. How did Ang Lee turn up at your place in Maine? What was the connection there? How'd the phone ring? Uh, David McGee actually was um, uh, had been hired by Ang to develop a, a new script, and uh, he David told me that it actually was his, um, I believe it was his son, uh, who had been reading um, uh, uh, Adrift, and he said, "Well, Dad, you're working on this film about this about these ocean survive. You know, the, the, this this kid in a, a lifeboat. You but you you should call this guy in Maine." And you know, there were other people who were actually I was mentioned in the in the book, and there were several other people uh, along with myself, Dula Robertson, the Baileys, and right, so right, on, and right. Poon Lim, but. Uh, frank, frankly, um, well, uh, actually, uh, I don't think he did, did mention Maurice Bailey because they could have looked him up, but everybody else was dead, so I guess I, I was the easy guy to track down. Good job. I just noticed we're about half past boat talk this morning. Yeah, I think um, first we should give credit to uh, Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill, um, who keeps boat talk on the air, and we are approaching the end of our uh, fiscal year at the end of the month and still a little bit short in our, what we need to keep things in the black. So if you can uh, help contribute to WERU to keep things afloat, that would be very good. Just give us a call at the office number, which is 469-6600. Stay but, tuned for Alan floated a um, idea this morning for a different boat talk cruise, and another boat talk cruise, and not out of... Uh, uh, Mount Desert, Maine, no, possibly more of a daytime nature and, cruise and down coast to yep. uh, mid coast. So right. stay tuned for that. We'll save we'll the details, possible when they you know come true or not. But boat talk cruise is the one regularly scheduled is going to happen, I believe, on June seventeenth this year, Saturday. Always not only a good time, but a regular fundraiser for this here community radio station, and and people keep coming back, and we just keep having a pretty good time. So. Yeah. I think probably um, we better backtrack just a little bit. And for the people who are not familiar with the movie Life of Pi, we and wonder what we're talking about. Oh yeah, it's, it's a it's a. It, I can understand why a lot of people making movies really wouldn't like the idea of a, a movie about tigers in a dinghy in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> now, wonderful. Uh, I've I've uh, honestly I've read I've read both books and seen both trailers. Now you can Google Life of Pi and watch the trailer on uh, YouTube, same within the heart of the sea. I highly recommend both of them. Um, wonderful books. The Life of Pi, real quick, is uh, Yan Martell. The uh, story is an Indian family runs a zoo, and they decide to immigrate to Canada with their zoo. The ship sinks out from underneath the zoo. Uh, Pi, the son, is the only survivor, 
And when he swings, swims to the life raft and uh, pulls the cover back, there's a tiger inside. <laughs> so he's not very happy. And uh, so how are we going to get along? And uh, that's uh, that that cover a good good chunk of it. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And it's all about animal behavior as well as um, you know seamanship in, in so many ways. And just a wonderful story that again was just apparently begging. Yeah. To be turned into a movie, but not that easy to do. No, no, you it's watch... not easy making films on the water or having anything to do with the water. <laughs> apparently on land either. It apparently takes a uh, not a village but a small army to make a film. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and when part of the uh, uh, cast is is the water, the water, uh, especially when it's acting hard and moving around, man, uh, it's heavy. It's dangerous. Um, they go live um, on on set. They go live on uh, uh, studio, and they go uh, CGI too, computer generated. Right. Uh, fascinating uh, to try to figure out how they do it. But again, the, the uh, blend of those techniques, though, just like you know, all of modern technology, whether we're talking about sailing around the world and in reality or or making films, there's there's a big blessing to it because we we're now able to uh, to bring a lot of oceanic um, stories really to life much more than we ever were before, um, thanks to things like computer graphics, but also techniques like in in Pi, for example. You know, they created this amazing wave tank. And blending that with computer graphics was, uh, I think, very successful in creating a, a really stunning-looking film. And in, in The Heart of the Sea, um, it was a blend of computer graphics uh, working in a, a very small wave tank with really not a lot of action in it, uh, but also uh, going to the Canary Islands and actually filming to sea. You know, going out in the morning, you'd see all these boats going out. It looked like, it looked like a scene of, of from Waterworld with all the smokers, you know, all these oh, yeah. weird little craft steaming out of this harbor every morning with a square rigger. And it was... Uh, but because uh, all it's the hangers tough. on that would be around the set all got to be on a boat around the set, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. We, had, you know, like there, there was a big vessel, the village, park, park the, near, the army's park gotta, nearby, yeah. with all the sound, sound people, and the, you know, the script supervisors and all that sort of thing, and we're ferrying people back and forth to these little whale boats that they had to be in and whatnot, and. You know the Canary Islands are volcanic islands. As soon as you step off the uh, step out of the harbor, you're in very deep water there. You know, Can't one, anchor. Yeah. No, one day, in fact, we were we were testing the 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 whale boats, and uh, one of the actors it was kind of calm, and he he just jumped overboard. And I said, you know, you know, you're in really deep water here, and there's all kinds of animals in there. And he goes, oh, he kind of laughed it off. And the next day, we're sitting out in a dinghy. Uh, watching them practice rowing, and uh, this 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 big this big shark just like slides right underneath us, and he, he didn't believe it. But you know, you're in deep water there uh, very quickly, and which was fantastic because they saw all kinds of wildlife, you know, uh, that they were able to film as well, you know, whales and dolphin and all that kind of stuff. Wow, um, what are your duties on 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 the job? Uh, that's varied quite a lot. I mean, I was hired uh, really for both films as uh, survival and um, and uh, uh, marine consultant. Um, in Life of Pi, I did everything from you know designing and making props, helping rehearse the actor, um, 
Showing the actor how to use a sextant. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I ended up directing wave tank operations and all kinds of stuff. With Within the heart of the sea, I was a little bit more limited. I usually interacted with all of the departments, whether you're talking about, you know, what 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 how's the clothing being aged by the weathering and that kind of stuff. So you're working with wardrobe or um, uh, makeup in terms of how, to, how are people deteriorating through the process. Um, all those kinds of things, too. Um, but in, in mostly in the heart of the sea, I was, uh, I was there to support the actors, to coach them if they had questions or, you know, each one has their own personality and they're asking about their motivations and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just helping out wherever, wherever I could, really. Um, and, and sometimes that's just uh, giving advice to somebody who's seeking it about a prop or, or something like that or running, running actors around or helping them rehearse, um, that's, that sort of thing. So actually, In the Heart of the Sea was a much easier job for me. And in, in Life of Pi, I was running around like a maniac for doing all kinds of things. Sounds pretty damn glamorous to me, do um, it was fun. It was really interesting. It was really yeah. difficult. Um, didn't get much sleep, um, but um, it was very fulfilling in the end. We're uh, talking to Steve Callahan this morning, doing boat talk, talking about his uh, Hollywood work. Uh, give us a call this morning. I notice we haven't uh, talked to anybody yet or even uh, uh, talked much about the phone number now, have we? Nope. 1-866-625-9378. Yeah. I've, uh, again, uh, read both books several times and uh, seen the trailers. Now, Life of Pi, pretty highly rated. Uh, uh, four out of four, Roger Ebert. Uh, eight yeah. out of ten, uh, Rotten Tomatoes or something. And yeah. Very, very well-received film. Yeah, it was it was very well received. It got a bunch of Academy Awards and what are Oscar, yeah, Oscars? Yeah, I guess yeah, they call yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, maybe brag that's, all you want. Yeah. Well, they got it mostly for well, Ang got it for Best Director, uh, which I, I thought was was great. It was his second, uh, and I, I think he deserved that. It got you know for things for you know cinematography and music. The music fantastic. Um, what interests me about doing that? I, you know, I worked at um, Cruising World magazine for four years, and other than that, I'd mostly been kind of a one-man band in my life um uh, and that was the first time where really you know you realize that you're working on these projects that no individual could possibly do on their own you can turn out something that's pretty cool from it and the movies is like that on steroids it just was a real privilege to be able to work with this uh, immense collection of um incredibly skilled people, um, many of whom are very A-type personalities, and it's amazing you can coordinate that and get them all to work together, uh, pull, pull, uh, pull, pull on the oars in the same direction, you know, but um, it does happen on occasion, but it also makes you aware that any one thing in a film can fail and ruin the film. If the music's wrong, if the editing's wrong, the cinematography's wrong, there's any one thing can fail uh, in these big projects like that, and it is kind of like working in the Army now. These people are gone for months at a time. Uh, you mentioned Hollywood. Well, virtually nothing's made in Hollywood anymore. I mean, there are a lot of offices there and whatnot, but uh, films are made on location all over the world, wherever the best deal is. Um, uh, in the case of In the Heart of the Sea, actually, um, Warner Brothers bought a, uh, an old airfield in uh, outside of London uh, that originally made uh, Mosquito Bombers and then made Rolls-Royce engines for... Um, for, for aircraft, and uh, these make very good movie studios, uh, but there's only so much you can do there, so people tend to go on location all around the world. They travel for months at a time. It must be really hard on their families. 
Life of Pi was directed by Ang Lee, uh, Brokeback Mountain, among other things. Uh, in the Heart of the Sea, I noticed um, on the uh, uh, Googleization, when I Googled her, uh, says going to be on TV soon, coming up soon, which uh, will be quite interesting. Also, uh, quite well-reviewed, not as uh, uh, well-rewarded as, as uh, I don't think, Life of Pi, but directed by Ron Howard, Opie. That's right. You know, uh, yeah. Richie Cunningham. Yeah. Um, Captain makes a difference on a, on a vessel. I'm, I'm very, very <laughs> firm on that. Uh, like, compare and contrast your two uh, director buddies there. Very different men, both incredibly uh, talented, obviously, and very successful. Um, Ang Lee is a very artistic personality. Um, he doesn't often know what he wants until he actually sees it. Um, he, uh, he will go really long hours uh, working on something and really don't know if we're going to get what we want. The first night of shooting, everybody we thought it might have been a disaster because we were trying to film this very difficult sequence and uh it, it it ended up that we got no shot that night which is not good for the studios you have to send in dailies and if you're not making any progress this is they got a bill but they didn't get pictures they'll pull the they'll pull the plug even if they've wasted 20 30 million dollars better waste that than 120 million dollars uh ron is um but you know ang you know i can't say enough about the man he's, he's a friend he's, of yours he's a wonderful man and i love that artistic part of him because he will not be happy until he sees something that is really unique and even during the film despite all the blue screen and all that you're often looking at stuff and going my god this is just going to be an iconic film image that will live throughout film history um ron is also a great storyteller um in film he's grew up you know he was acting literally as a Born baby it. um and for me it was kind of fun to meet ron because we're almost the same age i'm sure like a lot of people his age i, I feel like i grew up with opie you know and um you've i've watched his career through all these years and i'm very proud of what he's accomplished um he's very workmanlike um you have a you know, a, a, a plan for the day. You're going to go out and you're going to shoot X, Y, Z. And uh, with Ang, you'd have no idea if you'd you'd even get X, not to mention Y or Z. You might work, you know, incredible hours. With Ron, it was like, no, you do X, Y, Z, and you do X, Y, Z, and you're back home for dinner kind of thing. Um, uh, so he's very production-oriented, and I'm sure studios love that because he's much more predictable. Um in the end, I think that In the Heart of the Sea suffered some criticism, which is probably just in that uh, it was a big, big story to tell. And Ron decided to kind of tell two tales, which is the tale of Melville uh, digging into the story and uh, him early in his career wanting to create the great American or something of note. Um and the other tale was the actual survival voyage. Um, and and it, it, it kind of split up the film and didn't give enough time, perhaps, to, you know, the development of the, the survival story in the, in the, in the boats to, for people to really get attached to the characters. Cool. We're doing Boat Talks morning. Steve Callahan, give us a call if you uh, like to join the conversation at all. The number, is, oh, I covered it up, Al. <laughs> With the poster. Yeah. 
You, had you can see it better than I can. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Yeah. Um, one reason I'm on the radio, I grew up around a television station. My dad uh, was on and then managed uh, WMTW Poland Spring, Mount Washington. And here's the point: going to the TV station and standing behind the cameras messed things up for me. It it, it uh, skewed my sense of reality. Yeah. When I watch TV, I think about the other side of the... That happened with you being in the movies? Uh, yeah, it doesn't turn me off, though. Actually, I, I've enjoyed that. Um, yeah, you, you can't suspend your disbelief the way you used to, perhaps. But um, I, now when I watch films, um, I'm very aware of um, all the little segments that it took to create this one scene. Like if you we were going to film the scene here with the three of us, you know, when you're watching the movie, you just think it's, it's almost like a camera is like moving around and filming all this stuff but you know there are all these different takes so they can get your close-up and alan's close-up and my close-up and back away and get it from different angles and whatnot and then you splice all that together somehow magically and it comes out looking like uh like like like, like you're almost in the room with them and uh just watching how the uh visual effects and special effects are done and all that i find it all really fascinating and uh so i'm, I'm glad i've had this experience uh, like i say i love Love film ever since I was a kid, watching things like you know Sinbad the Sailor and all that stuff, and uh, and so it's 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 really been a, a great experience to learn a little bit about the the inside of it. And I, I actually like that part of the, the the filmmaking business. I think kids these days when they're 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 thinking about Hollywood or whatever, they all all anybody thinks about is becoming a director or an actor, pretty much. But there are huge opportunities throughout the movie business. If you're an electrician, if you're a uh, good with me- doing things in wood, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, uh, there's a, there's a space for you in the in the movie business. Get you thinking about process. The uh, phone just rang. Yes, yes. Uh, Karen in Bar Harbor just called one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. I also should mention too that you can uh, email right into the studio here at boattalk at gmail dot com. But first, let's go to Karen. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Thanks for a great conversation this morning. Uh, I'm doing some work at home and have this on in the background, but it's a really nice conversation. I wanted to just comment about the um, cruise ships in harbors uh, in down east Maine and that there was a big effort. Um, I think it was led by Jane Disney at the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab years ago. I knew some high school students were very committed to um, making sure that cruise ships didn't uh, dispose of their gray water in our harbors and i haven't followed up on it but i know that um there was a huge effort to um let them know that that's unacceptable even if we let them come into the harbors whether we uh whether north northeast harbor won't face that you know but i just wanted to mention that that there are efforts um we know they're doing it um and there's some efforts to um really stand up against that so thanks again for a great conversation this morning Thank you. I've already, uh, we're going to pursue that a little bit, and then I'm going to pursue what you just mentioned, too. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. one 625 9378 Yeah. Boattalk at com. Alan's got the computer open. That's, uh, you know, that's a good thing to have a partner that's complimentary sometimes. One yeah, is cooperative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, 
Steve, uh, got to mention, too, uh, you didn't get a chance to bring me a copy this morning, but uh, you wrote another book, too, that I'm just a big fan of. It's called Capsized, another right. another, another survival story. That's right. Yeah, it's a story of the Rose Noel uh, trimaran, uh, 40-foot trimaran that uh, left New Zealand, uh, headed for Tonga, uh, left from the South Island in New Zealand, went many people don't realize is that New Zealand's really down there. You know, Cook Strait's basically 40 degrees south, so yeah. you're in the roaring 40s as soon as yeah. you leave south, north end to South Island. And uh, uh, that was the winter down there, and they thought they'd have a pretty good passage, but a storm blew up and the boat capsized, uh, and a crew of four ended up spending uh, 119 days upside down, boat half-flooded. There was a little bit of space about the size of a double bed with about 18, 20 inches of headroom um, under the cockpit where they could kind of all huddle together most of the time and cut a hole in the bottom so they could get out on the boat. Um, one reason why I wanted to actually write the, uh, uh, write the book was to, uh, to, to, to very clearly show that after four months adrift, they were in pretty good shape relative to other survivors of life rafts and lifeboats, especially. They had stuff that was in their they boat. They had the boat. They were able to get up, uh, be dry some of the time. They um, had room to roam around and had a big platform to fish from. So it was kind of the ultimate life raft. And when they got ashore, uh, a lot of people at first uh, – uh, uh, congratulated them, and then almost immediately a bunch of people started saying, oh, this must have been a hoax, and it took quite a big government inquiry and whatnot to confirm uh, what had actually happened to them, which is they, that they were telling the truth. This sort of thing happens to survivors quite frequently. When they have the bad taste to show up alive after everybody's written them off, people start yelling hoax. But um, – it, it was uh, it was a good project to work on. I wrote it through the eyes of uh, Jim Nalepko, who was one of the crew. Um, for me, that was a lot of fun because he knew absolutely nothing about boats or sailing. Uh, he was a cook at Outward Bound. He had never been on a boat before. He didn't know what a cleat was. Um, so it was it was kind of a, an interesting outlook uh, towards the towards the. So event. how much time did you spend talking to him? Oh, a lot. Uh, Jim came and lived with us, actually, while we were oh. writing the book. I, we had about 40 hours of interviews of the crew. Uh, John Glenny, the skipper, had already written uh, a memoir about it. Um, and Jim came and lived with us for about six months or so while we were we were writing the book. So we, he'd, I'd sit him in a chair every day and just do what you guys are doing to me right now. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and, and then I'd sit, sit around at night and, you know, draft up something and read it to him the next day and go on G from there. Was Jim a good guy, good company? Jim's a great guy. Yeah. He really is. Yeah, he's, he's a lovely man. He uh, ended up um, uh, kind of the long story. After, after the guys got back uh, from the event, his best friend, Rick, who was also a member of the crew and did not get along with the skipper, that's a big part of it is that's how— I was getting to that. The—, the, the, the the tension between the crew and uh but when rick came back he um uh had brain cancer uh at, which actually had been in remission uh when he went off on this voyage and then it we've, either was a new tumor or that the old tumor had come back and uh he ended up dying uh from it and uh jim had basically nursed uh rick through 
this cancer plus spending all this time with him on 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 the boat and that uh, led uh, led Jim into becoming a, a nurse um, and he's in Minneapolis nursing wow. now and far and away from the sea uh, yeah I don't think Jim is he's not like me he's not he he's I a quick bo- he's a quick learner I'm a slow learner <laughs> we can't right move to Minnesota can we Steve <laughs> literally we can't do it no I can't do that too far from the ocean it's too too far although the know. you know there are lakes but That's, they, no, uh, they scare me worse than the ocean does yeah. so yeah um and I wanted to mention that as a great part of the survival story those boys were on that boat upside down for pretty near four months and not all getting along good most of the time no the story the story of capsize is really about how uh, you know adrift is kind of uh, there's a um, an inner tension uh, in myself you know and I kind of divide myself into a physical and an emotional and a rational part that are always fighting with one another in Jim's case it was kind of the same scene but with the different members of the crew and it took them a long time to realize uh, I mean the, the basic theme of the book is that it takes everybody yeah. and everybody has strengths and weaknesses and sometimes one's strength is a weakness in certain situations oh, well put so um, you know they needed Rick's uh, in in John Glenny's uh, you know t- sort of take charge attitude although they rubbed against one another but they needed uh, 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 John Glenny the skipper's uh, positive attitude to get them through but sometimes it was too much it was like oh my god we're out here suffering dying and you're here saying oh what a great adventure and they wanted to throw him off the boat and you know jim was kind of like the diplomat of the crew if you will first of all he's the cook and everything revolves around food when you don't have much and uh and he kind of saw everybody's sides he could relate to to everyone and including his own failures which is something that drew me to him initially was that he was able to say look i was totally useless out there and uh and, and that sort of thing so yeah. it was it's it's an interesting story in terms of of um uh having no heroes that it the the hero is yeah. the hero is the group and how they somehow overcame all these huge differences worked together enough in the end and discovered a lot of strengths that they didn't know that they had and uh, and were able to survive 119 days at sea. Huh. book is called Capsize. We do have Callahan, a, yeah. yeah, we do have a phone call, so let's quickly go to Bradley down in Owl's Head. Good morning, Bradley. Hey, guys. How are you? Excellent show. Well, as usual. Hey, uh, this is way off topic, but I just thought I'd tell you about something maybe for a future show that's fascinating. Green, Greenland Sharks. I don't have a computer. I don't know how to use the one, but I thought you guys could check out the new research on the Greenland Sharks. I always like them because, you know, they eat polar bears. But, <laughs> yeah, anyways, uh, Not they've, many been of those left. And st- they've been tracking and studying them for a while. And the new research says the youngest shark they tracked was 284 years old. and That was a female and a male. The big one was 392 years old. Point. No, they didn't tell them to. They took laser <laughs> photos question. of their eyeballs or something. Yeah, so the oldest one is born in 1624. Huh. Check it out. For okay, a we'll check that out and find out how you do anyway, age I a know shark. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. time for you guys to close down, but I just couldn't resist telling you telling you about it well no we appreciate the input thank you very cool bradley i've been reading about a couple of critters lately and i'm i'm surprised some of them only live a year uh you know and and some of them uh loons and stuff might be 20 years old just for example yeah, they're you know. convinced they're accurate in the age of the sharks 
Maybe it's because they eat polar bears. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot for everything. Yeah. And again, the job is to eat, basically. Uh, eat and reproduce is, is pretty much full-time mm. occupation. And uh, yeah. so anyway, keep it simple. Yeah, and, here's and another quick, quick shark story yeah. that happened in, off of Australia. They tagged a uh, eight-foot white shark to see where it went around. And uh, the the transponder went missing for a while, and then it finally washed up on a beach, and they've researched, figured it out that that shark was eaten by an even bigger shark, and that bigger shark just uh, huh. spit up the uh, the uh, transponder. Just uh, read an interesting book called Grunt. It's about uh, military research, and there was a big chapter about uh, shark research and how apparently in World War II especially... They did backflips trying to do shark repellents, and they couldn't find anything. Hardly they could find things that would attract sharks, <laughs> but not too many things. That, Us. That, well, but but here's the point: um, we uh, we are attractive to sharks a lot less than we tend to think. And um, for instance, uh, they don't want to work hard at it, and uh, if they're not used to you, you're not uh, you're not first on their menu, and uh, certain behaviors will attract them more than anything else, and. Uh, Women uh, uh, menstrual issues are not good at all, but you can apparently bleed in the water, and, and uh, the shark might not. He'll, he's going to, under certain circumstances, he's going to know you're there, but he might not still want to eat you unless you're a woman, and they, they love that stuff. So, um, But they tried so many things that didn't work and then ended up, um, in essence, giving, giving survivors what they call little pink pills, little, you know, Hmm. Kind of a it's better to have a placebo yeah. than nothing. Yeah, in some ways. Well, I've talked to several people through the years who've been bitten by sharks. And again, <laughs> I mean, it happens. One, one guy, one guy was killed off yeah. of, off of uh, Florida during a bull shark migration. I, I I think that you know when working on Life of Pi, we're working with real tigers and whatnot, and the guy who who dealt with the 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 animals, who managed all the animals and whatnot. He he was big into. Uh, uh, emphasizing that uh, animals are wild and they're unpredictable, um, especially those at the top of the food chain. You know, you might get along well with uh, with, with with a lot of them, but that doesn't mean there ain't going to be that one. <laughs> Part of the shark research was life of pie related in that it was about animal behavior. And if you if you behave properly in front of the shark, he may not bite you like the tiger might not because you, you know, just give him a signal that, right thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. So anyway... Piping us out, what can we say? Uh, Steve Callahan, thanks so much for coming, man. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, appreciate it. And stay tuned. Up on uh, music, back, back yep. to music on the wing. And uh, Tuesday afternoon now, starting at 2 o'clock, Sarah J. Take you down in New Orleans. Great. Support for WERU comes